Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today we are talking about the book called Downriver, Into the Future of Water in the West by Heather Homesman. And we're going to do it a little differently again. (laughs) (laughs) And this time I read this book and I'm going to tell Kate about it. So she knows very little about the book and I'm going to explain a summary and some of the key points and I have questions for her along the way so we'll still have a conversation like usual but this time Kate it's going to be a surprise for her what we're talking about yay I'm excited I am excited to learn about rivers (laughs) or one river in particular I I, you can tell how little I know about this (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, and I wanted to say at the top, too, that this was not inspired by, but I have cousins, Monica and Andy. Shout out to them. They live in the area that we're going to be talking about today. And at Christmas, I was home and they were there. I got to see them. And we were talking briefly about the struggles about water and water usage and running out of water in the West in the United States. And I'm, I was really interested in the conversation, but I knew I understood very little about the larger issue. And then I, I just kind of stumbled into this book and I was like, Ooh, here's my opportunity to really learn about this. And So here we are. Now I know some things and I'm going to tell you some things. Although, again, I'm not an expert or anything. I just have read one book about this topic and had a conversation (laughs) about it one time. So I will probably get some things wrong and I don't have any other context other than this person's opinion. Also, I think it's fair to say that this conversation is more about your review of the book than the topic at large. That's fine. That's what the podcast is about. (laughs) This is not an extensive, definitive history of the Colorado Rivers. Exactly. Um, Okay, so are you excited? I'm so excited. Let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to start with a summary just to give you a little bit of like, what's this book even about? And then we'll go from there. So Heather, Heather Hansman is a journalist and author who has published two books, this one about rivers and another about skiing which I would like to read at some point. And she has in the past written for places like The Guardian, The New York Times, and various environmental publications. She really focuses on things that happen outside. You know, she talks about people, relationships, um, but lots of things that occur outside. So farming, environmental things, weather patterns. I'm not sure you can look up her work, okay? (laughs) Google her, all right? (laughs) And yeah, look up her website. That's what I did. Jeez. (laughs) defensive I like that immediately you're like um I'm here to give you information (laughs) but also do it yourself do it you look it up okay listen (laughs) the podcast ends now (laughs) the whole podcast was just a four minutes of us insulting our (laughs) listeners I told you the title what more do you want okay (laughs) and she lives in Seattle which is so fun because that's also where I live and if you didn't know that now you do um so 
bet- sometime between 2017 and 2018, I couldn't, for some reason, find out the exact time that she started working on this book. But it was sometime around there because it was after the 16, 2016 election and it was this book was published in 2019. So sometime between 2017 and 2018, she embarked on a two month semi solo paddling trip down the green river, which is a 730 mile river that runs through Wyoming, Colorado, and then Utah before converging with the Colorado river, which is the big river that feeds much of the West. But the green river is the one that she paddled down and the Green River feeds into the Colorado River. I'm sorry, I'm still hung up on 700 plus miles. That's so I know. much to paddle? So much paddling. And there's like white water Her rafting throughout here. must have been killer by right? the end of this. <laughs> um, she grew up in Maine and did. She, she's been like doing river stuff for a long time. Like she did white water rafting, okay. guiding so she has, like, a and stuff. Of so doing, she's like water sports. Yeah, she's experienced it. Like, disclaimer here is that she did not just decide to, like, get in a boat and go down a river. Like, she knew (laughs) how to do that. So I would not recommend that for anyone without experience. This is also not a how-to guide. Got it? (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. So don't – it's like the disclaimers you see on social media posts now. Like, these things could result in injury, so don't. (laughs) Um, Anyway. (laughs) So she began this trip in an attempt to understand the complicated struggle around water usage and water rights in the West. And throughout her trip, Hansman finds that the issue is multifaceted and very slippery. There is no white one right answer as to how to solve water usage. And what is best for one group is actually often in direct opposition to what is best for another group. And there are a lot of groups involved. So there are cities, there are farmers, there are Native American or Indian reservations. There are oil companies, which I know we don't like, but we obviously need. (laughs) And there are natural ecosystems of endangered species. So there's all sorts of people and groups involved who need water and need it to be preserved or used in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And they all have their own unique needs and demands. Mm -hmm. So... It creates this very um, tangled problem. And once you pull one thread, it kind of tightens it for everyone else and vice versa. Um, So as we go through here, I'm going to start by describing the region and the unique challenges that it poses to sustaining life so that you have like an idea of what place we're talking Mm -hmm. about and why it's tough. And then I'm going to explain the nature of water rights because they are very complicated and... um, not intuitive and then i'm gonna we'll go through like a couple longer sections that i might read from and that i think will help us understand the big picture of this book and also some of the solutions that people are working on um, to try to solve this problem so to begin though i have a question for you okay and it is (laughs) have you slash would you ever consider doing a long three plus days river trip like this why or why not? <laughs> I love the why or why not. It really takes me back to my like elementary <laughs> school. school essay days. Uh, I think that would be really cool. I would be very interested in doing some sort of mm, river trip, if that's what you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I would really, I've been wanting to go kayaking or whitewater rafting or something like that for a long time. In all of the places that I've visited, it's just never really worked out in terms of like timing or, um, you know, renting out the equipment needed or whatever. 
but yeah, that's definitely something that I would be interested in. It's, it just seems like it would be really different and fun. I obviously have no expertise having never done it before, but it seems like something that would be a really fun experience. Uh, and yeah. I would be totally down for that. I, I feel less down for it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it too scary? Because I get the like, the, I don't know, it's a little bit like skydiving or bungee jumping. I have gone skydiving, so maybe that is, like, a nod. (laughs) Molly's just shaking her head right now. (laughs) Um, I was 18. It was my one rebellious thing I ever did, so Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) I didn't tell my mom, and when I got back, she was like, I knew that's what you were doing, but I'm so glad you're okay. She, like, cried. I was like, okay, this is – it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I – my – X at one point did skydiving and I remember the day that he was going to do it like he took a class at the university we went to you could take a class which was crazy so I knew this was going to happen for a long time and then because he he did the solo like oh, you learn sure, how to do it yeah. solo and that's why you have to take a class and the day of I just was like I can't believe he's going to jump out of a plane today like it was a, it was very like <laughs> scary the day of but mine was tandem so it wasn't even yeah it wasn't even. that scary I don't people think, still die that way true Kate. Uh, that does happen. Uh, anyway, so I guess I, I feel like there are some things that our bodies are like, no, this is scary. And there's a reason why we mm, think it's mm-hmm. scary because you could actually hurt yourself a lot. And that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, the whitewater rafting, that I feel more neutral on. It's like, yeah, take it or leave it. The thing that makes me not so interested in this is the uh the grueling nature of it Mm -hmm. like i think i would get bored being just in a boat all day and then at night it's not like you're staying in a hotel you're just camping along the river Mm, side which that would be fun for like a couple of days but after it's i like camping i like hiking etc but i just think after three days i'd be like i am covered in bug bites oh totally i have been slathered in sunscreen and i'm still burnt You know, like I would be hitting my yeah. limit of discomfort and yeah. I'd be getting. I will paid. say if I were going to do something like this, number one, I would want to do like a trial round first where I just go out for like three hours. Yeah. To make sure that I yeah. am, like would like to do this <laughs> actually. And then the other part is just um, I would never schedule it for longer than three days. I mean, honestly, just yeah. like the idea of being somewhere where I couldn't like I don't know, access a grocery store if I needed to for, like, sugar level reasons is, like, kind of scary. So I think, yeah, it would definitely, I think two days would be, like, enough for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how I feel about it, too. And she, she, obviously, this was two months for her. And it's not like she, the way it worked was she would... I, I don't fully understand the way the car thing worked because she had a car throughout this process. And I think what she had was like, there was like a shuttle service or something. So she would sometimes drive her car down to where she was going to take out of the river, like miles down. And then she'd get shuttled back to where she was going to okay. go in with her boat and then go down to her car. Sometimes she'd have like a friend that she happened to know in the area, like do that for her. I I don't know how it worked, but I know that it did because she would get out of the river for a day or something and she'd have her car and she'd like go into the town and interview people and like 
go to the grocery store and whatever. Okay. So that makes sense. It's not like she was totally just like, I think she wouldn't have been able to survive <laughs> for two months, never getting out of the river, obviously. So just, I just imagine she's yeah. like harpooning fish as she goes. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> just like she's eating just them raw like, like a the grizzly grid. bear. Uh, yeah. So I. Uh, Heather's a badass, okay? That's what I'm getting out of this yeah, summer. Yeah. I would have been. Yeah, these like radioactive bears from Colorado. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> Um, okay. What are we talking about? <laughs> okay, so you're down for a river trip, but, like, with some caveats. Oh, like, pretty big ones. <laughs> Number one, will I like it? Let's do a trial Number run one, I don't like rivers. <laughs> Number two, I don't like boats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, well, have you ever done, like, just, like, a day, like, canoeing or something? No, I haven't done, like, any okay. water sports. So I, I would want to start a lot slower than this. Yeah, no, for sure. I was just thinking back to like the summer of 2016. I was living in Illinois and I did like a canoeing thing one day and it was just down like a very, there was no rapids in this river, you know, it was like a very slow moving river, but it was boring. Like by the end of it, I was like, ugh, that was long and mostly stupid. You're not a lazy river gal, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, maybe if I'd been like in an inner tube with a drink or something, but this was like, it was work and I couldn't get comfortable in the boat. Yeah. And the river was not like that charming that I was like, oh my God, look at that, you know? Yeah, continue. Okay, geographical region. So. The Green River, as I've said, is a 730-mile-long river in the upper Colorado Basin, and that runs through Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. So the upper Colorado River Basin is defined by the river network above Lee's Ferry in northern Arizona. It's comprised of four states, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And collectively, the upper basin states contribute the the vast majority of water coming into the Colorado River Basin. And that comes through winter snowpack, but with the impacts of climate change, altering the amount of snowpack and timing of spring runoff, water supply in the Colorado River is increasingly strained. And that paragraph came from AmericanRivers.org. I'm currently pulled up a map because I felt like I wanted to visualize a little bit better because I'm kind of notoriously terrible with geography, which is embarrassing, but it's okay. I blame. School. I had a, I, there's a map in this book and I looked at maps multiple times cause it's hard for me to do that without seeing mm-hmm. it also. Yeah. But basically you have an upper basin, which is where the green river runs through mm-hmm. and then a lower basin, which is where the Colorado river runs. And the reason it's called upper and lower is because the upper basin they get snow from the mountains. It runs down through that upper basin into the lower basin, which is drier and more desert-like. But that water that comes into the Colorado River is what feeds all the cities and all those like desert towns. And that's why they can have water is because of the Colorado River and, and because there's so much water or, you know, was so much water coming down from the upper basin into the lower basin. Okay. This is starting to make sense as I'm looking at a map. So everyone look at a map. Can I ask? <laughs> yeah, that's a great for a podcast medium. Can I ask questions? <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good. First okay. question. And you're probably about to go over this. How dare you? No, <laughs> first question. How dare you? <laughs> uh, so it looks to me like this particular river system supplies water to Los Angeles, Phoenix, 
uh, obviously parts of Wyoming, Utah, and Colorado, and a sizable portion of Arizona and some of Las Vegas into the Hoover Dam. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I can't. So many places. Yeah. So think of you named Los Angeles and Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. two huge cities, get their water primarily from the Colorado River. Wow. And I think that they, you know, they have dam systems now. They, I know they have other ways of getting water. I and I don't know what those are necessarily, but yeah, think of the strain. (laughs) Yeah, magic. They're making it. Um, it comes out of the slot machines. So. I don't know exactly, like, how it's divided. She does talk about this in the book, but I can't recall all those details. But, yeah, that's so much of California and then parts of Nevada and Arizona. And um, these are hot, dry states, Mm -hmm. and they have big cities in them. And those big cities are pulling water from the Colorado. And that water in the Colorado is coming from rivers like the Green in the upper basin. Okay. And so she goes down the Green River, which took me a while to understand, like, why are you going down the Green River if what you're studying is the Colorado? But what she's studying is, like, the water usage in that area. And it really starts in the upper basin because what happens in the upper basin determines everything below it, right? Down river. Mm-hmm. So that's why she starts there. And she does get a really clear picture of the struggle from that part of the river system. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, great. I'm glad that we have gotten somewhere. (laughs) Okay, so now I've mentioned water rights, water usage several times, and I'm going to get into that because this is really the crux of what the whole thing is. All right, so water rights in this region are determined by first come, meaning like generations back farming or first settlers And the one exclusion of this, of course, is native people because they have been fucked every way you can imagine. And this is another one because although they were obviously the first ones to use the water, they are not entitled to it in the way that they should be in the current, um, I almost said doctrine, but that's not what I meant. Um, Landscape. Laws, the current laws. Yeah. Um, The reason I almost said doctrine is because that, this first come thing is called the doctrine of prior appropriations. So this is hilarious that we're talking about appropriations, but not giving it to native people, but this is the way it is. So it it's determined by first come and beneficial use and beneficial use means that you are putting it to beneficial use. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be for farming or ranching or something that is considered beneficial And people are trying to have designations like beneficial use put to things like water tourism. So rafting, guiding, things like that, because that does generate economic funds for cities. But there's difficulty there because that wasn't necessarily considered beneficial use years ago when these laws were put in place. Mm -hmm. So this is a very rigid system that we're talking about, like first come and beneficial use what is defined what what defines beneficial use is very narrow okay i have a question already so i grew up on a farm i think i've mentioned that before if i haven't now i'm mentioning it i know some about what is farmed in california i know about ranches in the west 
Um, what are the most common like crops that are being farmed in these areas? Because I don't know anything about like Colorado or Utah farming. It's a great question. The two that I can remember from the book, um, the main one was ranching. Okay. So I think a lot of what they're growing is like food for the animals. And then, of course, they're the animals they're growing. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but then there was another one that she mentioned, I think, while she was going through Wyoming, that was um, honeydew melon was like they're a huge exporter of honeydew. Oh, really? Yeah. So there's definitely some crops that get grown and I'm not sure what all of them are, but um, I think a big part of it in the upper basin is ranching. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so that's kind of what is getting produced. And as you can imagine, that takes a lot of water. Especially because a lot of what they're ranching are large animals, right? So Yeah, exactly. Like cattle yeah. is a lot of what they're doing. So that takes a ton of water. And um, they have that first come and beneficial use thing because they have been there for years. Their families have been doing that for generations and ranching is considered a beneficial use. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of water allocated to them. But the other like crux of this is not just that like there's a lot of people there that need water. It's that when they put in these uh, laws, they over allocated the amount of water in the river. So they miscalculated it, and I'm going to explain why and how. So throughout the modern history of the rivers, there has been a lot of disappointing policy decisions. That's why we have such a rigid system right now and like why Native people didn't get the water that they were entitled to. And the most obvious fuck up is that this the amount of water in the river was miscalculated when they put together the laws, which are called the 1922 Colorado River Compact. So back in 1922, they realized, like, we have to figure out who gets to use what water and how. And in 1922, so they, this... they were like, by golly, we live in a desert. Did anybody notice we founded a bunch of cities in a damn desert? <laughs> Literally. Okay. And, of course, this is before, like, I, I don't know if Las Vegas was there yet. I doubt it was definitely not what it is today. You know, yeah, so yeah. these cities as they are now didn't exist then. And the only reason they can exist is because of this Colorado River Compact. And they knew that they needed to figure this out so that there could be economic development and, like, more people could live there. And they could, like, ranch more because cattle or guess whatever. guess what? We people need water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, crazy. Especially in a desert. <laughs> uh, okay. So they put together this agreement. And um, it's it, it determined how much water was in the Colorado River Basin, so upper and lower. And um, how it should be divided up. Mm -hmm. And in her book, Hansman says that it is a rigid framework for a system that is inherently variable. And the tragic flaw of this compact is the fact that it was agreed upon during the wettest period in recorded history. So Whoa. that means that the amount of water that they determined to be available in the Colorado River Basin way more than at large was way more than what we have oh, today. Shit. <laughs> okay, so I have some numbers for you. Are you yeah. ready? In the compact, they split up over 18 million acre feet. Okay. Acre feet is exactly what it sounds like. It is as much water as it would take to cover an acre a foot deep. Okay. So that's a ton that's of water already. Right? Yeah. And then we're talking about 18 million of those, okay? 
Um, but in fact, on average, we have closer to 13 million acre feet in the river today. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> Okay, so I'm starting to understand the problem. (laughs) Yes. Currently, people in the region are using about 15 million acre feet based on what they are entitled to per the compact. And that includes everyone in the region, right? Like that's Yeah, so that includes like cities, ranchers, Mm -hmm. you know, boaters. They're not using the water, but they need water in the river to boat. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right, of course. Uh, (laughs) So this includes boating is the water underneath. Exactly is the water. (laughs) Um and I think the reason this is able to happen is because they have huge reserves in dams and things like that. So if we use a little bit more than like was in the river that year, um, they have it in some dams. But this is really difficult for my brain to wrap itself around because it's like, it's not just, it doesn't stay still. How are you measuring it? I don't understand. Like, there, it's I, like my brain kind of short circuits yeah. when you try to like quantify how much water is in a river because I'm like, it's constantly moving. What are you talking yeah. about? This is not how I learned to count <laughs> things that are in motion. Uh, yeah. I mean, also, this obviously poses a huge problem, but then it, seems to me like someone who lives in the Midwest who has only kind of heard about water conservation, but is it's never really directly affected my life, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's only been very, very recently that anyone has been encouraged to conserve water. And I mostly mm-hmm. hear that from maybe people in those cities and specifically Los Angeles. So I am very curious, <laughs> like, obviously using more water than you have is not a sustainable solution. So how many years has this been going on where they've just been kind of using more than they have? That's a great question. I'm not sure when we like hit a tipping point. So this was made in the compact was made in 1922. Mm -hmm. And that was like I said, the wettest period recorded. Sure. Good so, job. and I think it <laughs> was job, yeah, human. it was just kind of like an Definitely anomaly. Nothing to worry about here, <laughs> right? Like, oh my god. Which, in their defense, they didn't, they didn't know, know that, that yeah. at the time. Of course, but it's still just like you you do know that rivers change you dummies like <laughs> you why did you think you would always have the exact same amount of water that you could make such a rigid framework? Also, I guess I'm wondering, did no one revisit this when they understood at some point in the 60s that that was the wettest period and it would likely not return to that amount of precipitation every year? So I think people have tried. Obviously, people have tried. But the difficulty in changing it is that it it affects in a domino effect every everyone mm-hmm. so if you tell ranchers but so the biggest use in the area is agricultural even though the cities use a ton of water too i think ultimately agriculture uses the most okay. and the other issue with um, beneficial use that i didn't describe is that you you get a certain amount so say you get one million acre feet i don't know if you don't use all of it that year, you might lose that allocation. So you're not putting all of it to beneficial use, quote unquote. 
then you might not be entitled to it again. I see. So they're kind of using it as like, that is a surplus. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Exactly. So they're not, they have no incentive to conserve the water because if they conserve it, then they might have less not have it when they year. need it in drier years. So they use all of it. So anyway, um, that agriculture is like probably the biggest user, especially in the upper basin. Mm-hmm. But if you take water from agriculture, not only are you taking away people's, you know, way of making a living, there are also effects to the food and supply chain that happen. Right. And there's definitely some slack there. Like we could make changes without wiping out the farmer's industry, but there's a lot of fear and not the ranchers don't want to be the ones who give up their water. What if they need it at some point, you know, and that's how everyone feels. And additionally, you can't just take water from a city. Like people will die without the water. So like, that's not an option. And the, the, the bigger issue with cities is that down downstream in the lower basin, they have water rights that they aren't necessarily using yet, but that they're legally entitled to. And if they do more economic development and more and more people live there and they start using all of their water rights, then we're just even worse because it's like, well, they're legally entitled to it. So you can't just take it away from them. But we're doing okay right now because they're not using it yet. Right, right. So there's all of this, like, mess. And I don't know why. It seems like it would be simpler to just be like, okay, we need to reallocate this shit. But. Yeah, or at least have some sort of kind of, I don't know, like, clause or something in the law that basically de-incentivizes that kind of surplus model. because. That seems like a huge factor. Like if you say, okay, you're allotted this amount, but if you give this back, maybe you get an incentive, you get whatever money back from the government, you get something. Right. Right. Uh, right. And then it's less about you don't get it again next year, but more about if you return what you don't need instead of using it up just to use it up into like note that you have used it then maybe you you have some sort of incentive to do that. But it, it is really yeah. fascinating, of course, like <laughs> if your incentive is to continue using all of it, you're going to use all of it. And I, I think like, so I was the seventh generation to grow up on my farm. And I think for a lot of families that are in maybe a similar predicament, that mm-hmm. it is a very, um, I think, difficult thing when you have a lot of family farms that have been basically pushed out of business, uh, Mm -hmm. especially in the last couple of generations. And uh, to have something like this be uh, an impediment to you continuing to farm, I can imagine is a pretty sensitive issue. Yeah. And it's not something that you are very willing to compromise on when you are looking at your way of life going away. Right. Even though you know it's not sustainable and that at some point, you know, something's going to get you're going to hit a wall of it's going to break. The system won't work. But it's like a pride thing when it's been in your family for that many generations. It's a part of your identity. It's a part of who you are. Um, I very much get like that side of it, too. So, it, yeah, I can understand like 
the empathetic view towards the people in the agricultural industry. Absolutely. Um, but again, that's kind of why it would be important to give them some sort of incentive and kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, peace offering <laughs> that like, yeah. hey, if you can help us with this problem, we won't turn around and stab you in the back and put you out of business. Right. Which is, I think, of course, the fear is that if we compromise on this, you know, give them an inch and they'll take a mile Mm -hmm. sort of a thing. And I think the example of uh, Indian Native American reservations in the area, there's, I I can't remember exactly the legal compact or whatever it was, but in, in one of these revisions or like, I don't know, supplemental laws that were made, they did secure a certain amount of of water rights for one of the reservations Mm. um so that they could have more economic development because you can't economically develop if you don't have water to support that development um and ultimately they didn't get it even though it's in the laws like that they legally legally are entitled to and so i think that is something that the ranchers know and sense that like just because you said this is going to happen, even if you put it in writing, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it will. And so we can't just trust you to take care of us. Sure. um, Because you, you can't be trusted. So and you, in this sense, I'm talking about like the government at large. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that's really how they feel about it is that you can't just rely on the government to take care of this system because they are clearly not doing that. Yeah, and if historically they've not only not taken care of these stakeholder groups, they have actually, I don't know, made it worse, <laughs> then like yeah. that's obviously, uh, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about eight, ten generations back, however long, whatever, that memory lives on too, right? So like, yeah, it, absolutely. That is, it becomes like your family mythology. Yeah, so like, if you're like, well, in yeah. 1930, the government fucked us over when they did blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, that, that resentment, that distrust is going to stick around because you hurt the livelihoods of the same families that are currently working the yes. land or ranching. So yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not going to go away. And the, um, in her book, Hansman describes a lot of ec- economic downturn, like in the cities that she, you know, when she gets out of the river and goes into town, there are just so many of them are struggling so much. And so you'll see a lot of people who are in support of things like fracking or, or things that from an environmental standpoint, we know are not the best mm-hmm. because they produce jobs right. and they produce these, these things that people need there. They have no, other foothold mm-hmm. um and and other things like um tourism they're trying like there are people who are trying to help others understand the benefit of like tourism brings in economic yeah. growth so like we don't have to do some of these things that are like environmentally detrimental but it, it is very easy to sit away in a city that i'm safe and i have plenty of water in and be like these people are so stupid but that's not <laughs> or they're selfish or they're closed-minded or whatever but if you were living in that situation and you were like literally scratching out a living from a desert you would not be so high and mighty about the environment i mean you can say the same thing about people in the coal industry in west virginia right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. if you are like 
the changes that are happening because of climate change are causing a lot of economic pain for people that built their lives on our old way of life and not providing them something in turn does leave them high and dry literally yeah, in this case. it does <laughs> yeah and there there have been really shitty things that have happened like one part she describes um a a ranch that was taken by eminent domain and given to uh an indian reservation which obviously those people deserve land but having your ranch taken by the government that sucks like tough things have happened to people like trying to survive in that region not just the climate but like the the political landscape has is fraught because of the the lack of water and so many people who need to survive there so it's you would feel that sense of scarcity mm -hmm. no matter like what you were trying to accomplish yeah i mean it sounds like every group that you mentioned at the top has felt the scarcity in their own way mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Which then, of course, leads to a lot of, like, fear because humans are motivated by resources because we want to be comfortable. And when we don't have those, it's very scary. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. curious about the Native American reservations that you mentioned. Are those, mm -hmm. like, getting – are they, like, essentially at the bottom of the list of allocation? Or is it kind of – reservation by reservation i mean i know a lot of um a lot of them in recent years have also tried to like you know maybe not tourism industry but like hospitality mm -hmm. industry with mm -hmm. casinos and things like that so like yeah. does that count toward um i mean obviously it counts towards economic development but is that mm -hmm. like enough to get them more water based on the legal definition or how is that working so I think the way it works is not like if you can prove that you can develop economically, then you get water. It's you have the allocation and because you have the water to support the economic development, then you could like build a casino. Okay. Say. But what I don't know so much about is how it is divvied up between reservations. And it, from the sense of the, her book, it did seem like, Native American, Indian, however they wish to be called, groups don't get the same kind of allotment or um, first come, first serve entitlement that they should because, of course, they were first. Um, I don't know that they're like last on the list, but it, it definitely has not been fair. And they, they definitely have gotten the short end of the stick in a lot of these um, negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. That tracks, given and I everything would, else. Yeah, I know, given what we know. And and I think there's, like, a balance here because the government has effed up a lot of this. They And, and I think the government doesn't manage resources well. I mean, that's, that's just what they do. They do badly at this. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of good intention. And I don't want that to be lost in everything that, that people have been trying to improve the government regulations and, and make everything better for everyone. Um, but there have been a lot of really terrible decisions made. And one that stands out to me when we're thinking about the environmental impacts of decisions that were made along the river 
I would say probably lowest on the list of groups that are cared about are the natural ecosystems. Mm. Um, because the river obviously doesn't have a voice of its own and the fish and the other animals that live there don't either. And so they were the easiest to push out or like mm-hmm. manipulate or whatever. And that seems, <laughs> yeah, that seems insane because it's like, but you need the resources in this region to be thriving in order to have them. Right. So I don't know what the fuck you're thinking, but clearly back in like the seventies and eighties, we weren't thinking about that the way we should have been. And one of the like worst stories that she talks about was I think back in like the seventies ish, they, um, in a part of, I think the green river. So that's up above the Colorado river in the upper basin, the the river she paddles down. There was a, a native kind of fish and they actively poisoned that fish to kill it all out so that they could replace that fish with a better fish to fish. Oh my god. Yeah. How fucking crazy is that? So That they were like, yeah, we're going to dump poison in this river to kill these fish because they're not as fun to fish as these other fish. What did that do to everything else in the ecosystem? <laughs> like, did that, like... What I I can't like I can't imagine a world in which there aren't severe repercussions for yeah. replacing one species with another species. Even well, not species because they're both fish, I guess. But yeah, but yeah, replacing one kind. fish with another kind of fish. Yeah, I mean, it changed it. I think um, irreparably. Yeah, and people are working to rebuild the natural ecosystem, but it's very difficult because what happens it's not well, just at the, this point the you have to fish. rebuild it around an ecosystem that never existed right because it's a new kind of yes. fish and you have to figure out what like that's so complicated and the dams have changed the ecosystems as well oh, so yeah. the dams are there to help us store water and and keep them in keep it in times of like drier climate and to support the huge ass cities mm-hmm. that are there um, but it changes the way the river works. So it makes it colder and deeper in some areas. It makes the water faster moving in some areas. And it really has a detrimental effect on spawning grounds for certain species of fish. So they need like warm, shallow, slow river for their eggs to spawn in. Oh. And now that river is like cold, deep and fast in certain areas. So these are the effects that like the way we have changed the system, it it ripples all the way down. And then it's like, okay, well, the birds that ate those fish can't eat those fish and the types of grass that used to grow there can't. And now there's this invasive, invasive species of like foliage or whatever. And so there's all these things that happen because of small or I mean, huge changes we've made, but that you don't realize all the effects they're going Incremental to have downriver. Yeah, yeah. um, and those things might not necessarily have an immediate impact on the supply of water itself, which I think is more climate based than like the fish in the water, mm-hmm. but it, it still changes an ecosystem in a way that disrupts everything around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not it's not good for those ecosystems yeah. so it's there's so much going on and the reason i brought that up was because out of everyone the last 
the last group that like ranchers or cities want to hear you talk about is the fish. They're like, fuck the fish. Yeah. <laughs> we need the water, bitch. Like, why do you care about the fish? Yeah. But you have to care about the fish too. Yeah. Like this is, it's crazy. So I can't imagine being like someone working for an environmental group that is like pro fish because think of all the fucking hate you would get for like yeah. that. Trying to but, protect but it's, the ecosystem. Yeah, there. but they have they have to. So, our, so tough. Uh, another question is mm-hmm. the are any of the fish in the river being used for like fishing and eating purposes or is it like mostly recreational and falls into that tourism bucket? Um, I think it's both. Um, the the thing she talks about most in her Hansman talks about in her book is the fly fishing. Mm. And I think that was what the the poisoning happened. I forget the types of fish, so but wild. they replaced it with a fish that was better for fly fishing, which is a big tourist thing. I see. Okay. And and the people who run these tours, you want to be able to guarantee that there will be good fishing and mm-hmm. the, the And and that's something else you that because you're there on vacation and Exactly. And you paid for, for it. Yeah. So um, but the the weird thing is, like, maybe they have a better fish for that now, but the dams create different um, climates in the water that are not as good for fly fishing. And so mm-hmm. they're, like, always battling one another in one way or another to, like, have the best climate for what they need. <laughs> it's just, like, wow. as soon as you solve it for one person, you've, like, kind of effed it up for, like, someone else. Sure. because. That like if the dams release water because the cities need it because it's like been a dry period, then it can it can screw up stuff for like the boating industry sure, or yeah. the fly fishing or like the spawning ground that you were like trying to keep safe. So all these groups that are working and protecting, they have to like communicate with one another to avoid like screwing up the other person's life livelihood. And it's just like, whoa, I can't imagine that. Wow. This is so complicated. (laughs) It's so complicated. So you can, you're getting a sense of like, oh, this is not solvable. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, okay, this is terrible. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Because it's, it is a lot about there not being enough water, but it's not just about there not being enough water. It's It's also also about the way we're using it. And And, and that you have um, needs and wants that are mutually exclusive. Exactly. And it's kind of how I felt when I finally um, decided to stop being ignorant about Israel and Palestine and read a book about oh, it and yeah. was like, oh, I see. I see how this has become an unsolvable problem given yeah. that the needs and wants here are mutually exclusive and that neither party is uh, maybe interested in coming together for a solution or yeah whatever you know and and kind of like understanding that is one of those moments you're like oh okay i'm starting to understand now (laughs) yeah and and i think i'm sure there are more than just like two groups in the israel palestine thing but in this one as we've described there's like seven different groups that you're like trying to support and work with and it's like whoa and and at least one of them is voiceless essentially yes uh because of the ecosystems i mean i'm sure obviously not to say that there aren't advocates or um activists working to ensure that they do have a voice but nonetheless they're not arguing on their own behalf right so right yeah that's very complicated 
Um, so I think at this point, unless you have another question, I was going to read, um, a section that I think it'll kind of put what we've been talking about in, like, wrap it in a nice bow. Uh, I love nice bows. I know, me too. And then we're going to go to talk about solutions. And you talked a little bit about this already when you were talking about the agriculture and, like, how could they make this better with the surplus issue? So we'll talk more about a couple of ways that they're trying to solve some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, how does that sound? Perfect. Read to me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this is um, towards the end of the book. She is, you know, getting towards the end of the Green River. And at this point, her parents actually come in to paddle with her for a couple of days. So she says, my parents have flown out from New England, where property-based riparian rights and a wet climate mean they don't think about water shortages <laughs> often. This made me think of myself because growing up in Ohio I, and now living in the Pacific Northwest, water is not something that I have a lack of. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a built-in water deficit is alien, and so is the concept of prior appropriations. After dinner, we sit in the dusk, swatting bugs, and I tell them that, for the most part, everyone is trying hard to use their slice of water in the best way they know how. There are no obvious bad guys or simple answers. We switch on our headlamps, and I tell them I think the question of how to use water in the future feels like it's on a precipice. How do we account for the coming losses and uses? What's the balance between environmental integrity and financial stability? How do we use water more equitably and sustainably while still respecting the past? Can we work within the existing laws and still acknowledge that they are inaccurate and flawed? How do we do better for the future, not just for right now? There was a lot of questions that she just asked us. <laughs> How dare she? <laughs> How dare you? I don't know. Um, but I like that section because it summarizes a lot of what she has discovered along the trip that the more you look at it, the more questions you have than answers. And you do start to see that, although I feel like the most obvious bad guy would be like oil companies, even they are not just pure evil. And everyone needs oil right now. Mm -hmm. So there is a real difficulty in like finding one person to blame because there of course isn't. And when you take something away from from one group it may solve a problem for another group but then there's another group in the picture who has a problem that's just as equally tough to solve so like five other groups that you're causing problems for i mean i think that climate change is especially tricky for this reason and this is something that has happened all over the world actually that uh oftentimes the policies that make a change that would help our climate change issues negatively impacts people who are on the lower socioeconomic uh, like level or, you know, people who, um, yeah, that are trying to find economic stability. And I know in France, this was a topic that came up in Canada. It's something that's come up. You know, I think it's something that has come up in a lot of developed nations because you're, again, trying to completely change a way of life. And that mm-hmm. that means that some people are going to get hurt. And usually it's the people who didn't uh, that like, you know, have more of their lives wrapped up in the original way of life, so to say, or not the original way, but yeah. like 
or the yeah. the industrial revolution way of life. Um, right. And so, yeah, the, it's just like very tricky. Like as you were talking about the oil companies, like, yeah, I mean, everyone who lives in a rural area needs a car. There's literally yeah. no other way to get places. And unless yeah. our government decides that they're going to actually uh, deeply and seriously invest in train infrastructure um, right. or, or some other kind of like transportation, you don't have mm-hmm. a choice. Like you have to drive a car. How else are you going to get anywhere? How else are you going to get food? Like, so, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's very complicated and yeah, solving one thing for one group of people may cause issues for like seven other groups. Like, yeah. Well, and if electricity is like a good alternative, but if you're like charging an electric car, if you can afford to purchase an electric car, where is the electricity coming from? It's coming from the grid that is also fueled by like oil or coal or sometimes, you know, water power, whatever. But it's like, it's not like not oil. Right, right. It's <laughs> and it's less and it's different, but it's still like ugh. it's usually not exclusively like solar energy or exclusively yes, exactly. wind energy or or whatever. Right. And like in in the area in the Midwest that both I grew up in and even, you know, that I drive through to go home in Indiana, mm-hmm. um there have been there's been a big investment in wind energy and these like windmills but those also cause problems too because with everything there's a a pro which is like the wind Mm -hmm. energy and kind of an attempt at transitioning to sustainable Mm -hmm. energy but then there's also a con that like a lot of them have like messed up um bird migration and a lot of them have taken like farmland and like if the people own that land and they want that that's their right to like you know sell to uh, windmill farms or whatever but it also likely means that that won't be farmland again you know and so like yeah there's just so many trade-offs there are and i i actually heard a clip of donald trump a while ago I don't know if it was at a rally or maybe he was just like calling into one of his stupid like Fox News shows, but he was talking about windmills and he said he was like, you know, they're so ugly. And then when they <laughs> yes, break, that, they of just leave them there. It's the biggest con they of don't all. don't even fix them. Is that they're ugly. I know. And I was like, well, <laughs> I don't think that's the biggest issue, but I do agree for once <laughs> they are ugly. <laughs> I mean, they are. All right. They are. They're ugly. Um, but he made it seem like the the thing he said that made me laugh was that like when they break they don't even fix them yeah. they just leave them there and I was like that's not true they, just, they don't just they this just cost like a billion dollars to make they don't just leave. they just leave them there and ignore them it's so can you imagine like doing anything like that like if you were driving your car and it just stopped working just leaving it on the side of the road and walking away and being like that's it better get a new car now believe me I've been tempted to. <laughs> Um, okay so i want to read this next section about agriculture and this like surplus stuff okay and then that's going to get us into like solutions talk so we'll go uh through this so this is again towards the the end of her book and it's in a chapter called you can't just sell out to a city in the balance of future water use agriculture is often assumed to be the sector surplus will come from on a broad scale, it makes sense to shift water from agriculture to other uses because agriculture uses 80% of the supply. 
But on a granular scale, shifting the balance would mean slaughtering some people's way of life or changing the way water rights are allocated. It's currently hard to slice a little water out of a right without sacrificing the entire thing. And water rights are so closely guarded that no one gives them up without a reason. Different uses rub up against one another and fear doesn't really allow for generosity. So the current question is, if we're going to have to reframe the way we share water, what will drive the reshuffling? I thought this was a really good section too that describes the the problem we've already illuminated, mm -hmm. which is that there could be a better way of allocating this, but the people who have the rights are not going to give them up because there's a scarcity. Mm -hmm. And that fear, like she says, doesn't breed generosity. You're not going to be like, yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. I'll give you my water. And there's enough to go around because there's literally not enough to go right, around. Right. And like, as you, as she also mentions, there's a history here that is not forgotten mm -hmm. and won't be soon. Yeah. And so yeah. that is, a part of it too that you're not going to get people to suddenly be generous now when they have a history of being like screwed over or overlooked or whatever mm -hmm. yes um so in the the last part of her book she talks about these two potential channels for re, -re reworking the rigidness of the compact so there are solutions that people are trying to find to these many faceted problems the first is something she calls markets and i'll explain what she means by that um, but essentially it's creating a market for water so letting agricultural users trade or lease their water rights without sacrificing them long term okay so that's pretty simple how the carbon credits work too. yes and this, uh, and the other one is changing government regulations. So that is like mm -hmm. straightforward, but complicated and slow. Um, so for markets, there's a been, there's like two methods that they're kind of playing with and testing out in different areas in the region. The first is a credit system. So they got this idea from, you know, carbon credits. And then there was this other program that they did in the area where they were protecting grouse habitats, which is like a type okay. of bird. And the oil companies were required to pay money into environmental preservation because their work was like damaging the environment. So they had to offset it. And the farmers would get credits if they used parts of their land to protect grouse mm -hmm. habitats. So the oil companies would buy those credits and the farmers would get the money because they, they got five credits for protecting X amount of land for the grouse. And then they got that money from the oil companies. So there was this exchange that was happening and that was really mutually beneficial. You know, the oil companies, I'm sure didn't like spending the money, but they were required to. So mm -hmm. they had to. Well, and it's better than being told, Hey, listen, you just can't use this land anymore or something, you know, like. Exactly. Would yeah. So there was an incentive because they're like, well, if we have to do this to use the land to drill, then we will. Mm -hmm. um, so they thought, could we use this for the water rights too? So the idea is that farmers would get credits for using less of their total allocation. Um, and that cities downstream would purchase those credits from them. So basically it would be like cities downstream buying water from mm -hmm. the farmers. Um, but the, I think th this part was a little bit difficult for me to understand because I, maybe it was just the way she wrote it, but 
I think what she was trying to say was that that doesn't work very well because right now the people downstream don't have to buy water. So why would I they? See. No one's telling them that they have to purchase these credits in order to like offset some environmental thing. So why would they purchase sure. the credits if they could just use sure, the water? Yeah. Well, um, and as you mentioned earlier, like if they have other ways of getting water without having to pay using the credits, then obviously that's what they're going to do first. Right. And I think what's happening right now is that a lot of the cities down river in the lower basin aren't using their full allocation mm-hmm. yet because they don't need to like their their cities are operating without you like pulling all of their allocation. So why would they pay for water when they still have water they could use in their allocation, even if that water doesn't actually mm-hmm. exist? You know what yeah. I mean? So that was, I think that's part of the reason why that like market doesn't necessarily just take off. But we all know that the water doesn't exist. So the market you would think would eventually once we're like, okay, so we do like we're running out of water. At some point that has to kick in, I would assume. Yeah. So the, that's the credit market. And then the other market is very similar, but it, I'm not sure why they call it two different things. And maybe it's because I just don't understand the intricacies of it. But the other system is that like farmers in the upper basin or ranchers could lease some of their water rights to the lower basin areas that need it um, and without giving it up. If in five years it's really dry one year and they need it, they were just leasing it so they can take it back. So that to me seems very similar to a credit system, but maybe in the credit system, it's like it, it happens year by year and it's it's more flexible because, well, I I didn't use one million acre feet and so I get a credit for that. Mm-hmm. But maybe next year I'll do more credits or something. I don't but clearly see, okay, know all the here's, details. <laughs> here's my confusion. So as much as humans have tried to predict the weather we still don't 100% know how much rainfall will be next year, for example. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about leasing water, mm-hmm. it, it would not be until like the end of the year, so to say, that you would know how much extra water you have, right? That's true. So is it that you're leasing for the next year? Or is it, like, how does that work? Because mm. you can't, like... I guess what I'm struggling with is, like, how do you lease something when you don't know how much you're going to have? Because you That's can't lease it question. in advance because how are you going to know? Maybe it'll be a drier year. You you know what I mean? I I have I no idea. To... That's a great question. And she does not address that in the book. Like, I, this was the hardest part for me to understand because it, it's it felt like complicated. it's very complicated. And I, yeah, I'm not sure how that leasing would work because it does seem like like, oh i would i would love to rent out my home as an airbnb Mm -hmm. but like i don't know when i will be there i'll be there or not yeah (laughs) yeah well that becomes pretty hard to do that yeah and you won't know until the end of the month that you could have like (laughs) right right and i won't know until the end of the year and then i want to retroactively rent my house for june 3rd It might be something that they, I mean, they do have very sophisticated models of Mm -hmm. weather and water averages and and because that's how they're operating the dams is based on models. And so they, they have a guess of how much water they need to release and when, and they, they have 
their computers run a bunch of different scenarios all the time to try to calculate the best possible thing. So I would guess that they are doing something similar where they have a model that they have for, you know, 2022 Mm -hmm. and they can estimate it pretty well. Okay. And that would make sense because otherwise like, well, yeah, you would have to have your, your best estimate. Maybe their best estimate is really pretty damn good. And so it doesn't matter as much, but I don't know. That just seems tricky for sure. Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. complex. And the other side of that coin is like, okay, if your estimates are that damn good, then you all know we're running out of fucking water. So yeah, that's uh, so funny. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure of all the specifics with that, that solution, but it is like, it's, it's what you proposed earlier on. And it is the most obvious solution is that if, if people in the upper basin have more water than they need and they are using it all because if they use it, if they don't use it, then they will lose it. Mm-hmm. Well then give them some incentive to stop using all of what they don't need so that downstream we have more to go around and that will reduce some of this tension and then everyone should be incentivized to use less water yeah for a variety of reasons right but those incentives don't exist in in legal or governmental regulations and that's the second part of this what is the solutions it's of course changing government regulations and I'm sure you could read an entire book about, like, what people are trying to do to change some of these very problematic, rigid systems that are in place. Um, but again, it's difficult because those regulations are harder to accomplish in capitalism when there isn't an immediate economic incentive for changing the regulations. Right now, the the immediate economic incentive is to use as much water as possible because it, it has the most economic growth and right. blah, blah, blah. But we have to be able to figure out a way to put the brakes on that system because we know it runs out. And capitalism is so fucking bad at putting brakes on systems that make it money. Yeah. I mean, the other part of that, too, is that if you're incentivizing people with this, like, first come, first served, and then the, um, like use it or lose it system, then you also have an incentive to go ahead and build that extra thing or build the development. And then once you have it, then you can argue, well, we have this, you have to support it, right? So it's like your incentive to like build it and get it done and like get in Mm -hmm. so that you can use that to then argue for more water it's just kind of like a self-perpetuating system too, yeah. it sounds like. It's like the ask for forgiveness, not permission thing where... Yeah. Exactly. If you build a city and there are people there, then you can't take water away from them. Right. And, and like the more suburbs or whatever that you have, yeah. the more water you need. And so, right. you know, yeah. And I think it's really wonderful that we live in a country where people can move to where they want and they aren't regulated in that way. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, well... Maybe you shouldn't let that many people live in Arizona. I don't know. Like, Jesus. <laughs> it's a desert. Um, so there's Maybe that Maybe everyone too. should stop living in the desert. I mean, um, it's like, obviously, you can't, like, blame the people who live there, right? Because that's also, I mean, New Orleans is below sea level. And when Hurricane Katrina happened, it mm-hmm. obviously completely destroyed the city. 
But yes. the people who were from there still want to live there. That's their home. And it so is. you can't, like, criticize them for wanting to go back to their home and being like, well, why would you rebuild when it's still underwater? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, but, like, as humans, we're more complicated creatures than that. And once we feel like we belong in an area, we're usually drawn back to that area. And that's not weird or strange or unusual in any way. I mm-hmm. mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously it's like, yeah, I, I get that part of it too. Yeah, and I mean it's the same reason like people are still living in places like Florida and on the coasts and things, mm-hmm. even though estimates say that in a certain amount of years those places will be underwater. Yeah, it's because they're beautiful and people want to live in beautiful places. So it's really tough. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. And and like if you're a rancher in wyoming or whatever and your family's been doing that for 10 generations it it, it's not a simple thing to just decide to do something else you also can't move your ranch so yeah and you don't necessarily know how to do anything else (laughs) you know like right or or that's your passion like you want to keep doing it and the pride that you've had in your family for doing this for all these years it's it's just not a simple thing to be like, well, people should stop doing that then. It's like, oh, wow. Thanks for that amazing <laughs> idea. God, if it were that simple. <laughs> Always criticizing, never offering solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this book I felt was so illuminating in those ways that I knew this was a complicated issue, but getting to see the the truly multifaceted complications around it was yeah very you know overwhelming in some ways because you're like oh uh this might not be solvable yeah but there are it's inspiring in other ways because there are so many people working towards solutions in the face of this very complex problem yeah so um i wanted to read a final quote and share some like places that you could donate if you are interested but before that i wanted to ask do you have any questions what do you think so far uh, I feel like I've asked you so many questions as if you great. are, an, in fact, an expert on this. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. I did my best. <laughs> You're like, no. well, I am. So <laughs> I fine. read one whole book. So, you know, <laughs> so I basically have a master's What more do I now. need? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I wrote the book. Um, yeah. I don't know that I have any other specific questions, but I think you did an excellent job of explaining this very complicated and very important subject. And now I'm kind of interested in reading the book. Yeah, it's really good. And the reason I wanted to read this final quote was because something I really loved about her writing was the way she wove this complicated story together with her own personal journey down the river. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, for all of us who have ever done something physically hard or mentally strenuous, whatever, usually a combination of both, it brings up our our emotions, our trauma, our past, our thoughts mm-hmm. about ourselves, all these things and our fears about our own weakness or inability to like accomplish hard things like write a book or do this paddling trip. And she does a really good job of handling that throughout the mm-hmm. book without it feeling disjointed of like, whoa, we were just talking about the river. And now you're talking about like your feelings because the thing she really uncovers is the way not only are people's ways of life tied to the river they they love it they love that river and and they're sad and heartbroken to see it like disappearing and changing and it, it, there's all of this like grief and love all wrapped up in this place so i thought that was really beautiful and 
she's talking about um this one day the end of a day with her parents while they're going down that section of the river and it's just been like a tougher day and so she says we've settled into a tempo of family river days but tonight i'm discouraged and resistant i'd wanted to show my parents how capable i'd become and how this river trip had given me poise and patience i hadn't had before but instead i eat pringles and pout while my mom cooks me dinner trying to remember that vulnerability isn't the same thing as weakness <laughs> so I, like I i really loved that um and i thought she did an amazing job of tying her story with the river and telling everyone else's in the process so yeah i love books like this that are written by journalists because i think they often hit on the human element of why you should care about an issue a lot more than other more academic texts Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um okay so that was the book and If you are interested in, so this is instead of a pop culture pairing, I am pairing it with a couple of orgs that she talks about in the book. So the first was um, the Nature Conservancy, which I think many of us have heard about, but they are one of the groups working on water markets in the area to relieve that pressure and incentivize water usage across the board. So I felt like that was described in a way of, in the book, she describes that group as basically like about to run out of money at any moment well <laughs> they if they're a non-profit I yeah that's not <laughs> which we can like all relate to those of us who've worked at non-profits so i thought that would be a good one to highlight and the nature conservancy is is a big org so i doubt that they are about to run out of money at any second but sure. that is a place that's doing some good work and then the American Rivers um, organization is working to designate parts of the river as wild places that would keep it protected and preserve habitats and things and protect the beauty and like sacredness that so many people love and care about. So mm-hmm. thought those two would be good places and we can put them in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I think, um, yeah, I, again, as somebody who's always lived in the Midwest and this has not been an issue that's like directly touched my life, uh, I think this is such an important thing to pay attention to because it's only going to continue being relevant as climate change gets worse. And as you're mentioning, obviously people are using more water than is being allocated to them. And yeah. so that part is going to continue being important. So yeah, I really like this. And I'm so glad you chose this book. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming along with the ride for me. <laughs> um, and then I think next time I'm going to hear from you about a book. So that's you exciting are, as well. And I'm pretty sure maybe I'm going to cut this out. I <laughs> 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 um, I'm pretty sure that we're going to talk about moral philosophy, which will be another complicated, weird, uh, scary topic, but also important and hopefully fun yeah well if you change your mind i won't hold that against you for a single second um <laughs> watch i say excited. this and then i talk about that book i read about boy bands <laughs> it's, like, it's a yes. very important topic okay <laughs> it's deep and it's it's essential to our way of life um yay well thanks so much i hope this was fun for everyone who listened and again shout out to my fabulous cousins i hope i did you justice and if i didn't please let me know
picture. But don't leave it in a comment. We only no. Want don't comment. put it on Instagram. That'd be embarrassing. <laughs> just text Molly and bully her. <laughs> just text me and tell me I did a terrible job. Um, yeah, but if someone listening is like a water expert or in, an expert on the Colorado River Basin area, and I messed something up, I would love to hear how I could have done it better. And if you're nice, you can leave it in an Instagram comment. Okay, but only if you're nice about it. You also have to tell us that we're pretty when you do Yes. The comment needs to begin and end with your gorgeous, beautiful, tropical fish. (laughs) Yeah. It needs to be like a a feedback sandwich. First, something great that I did and I'm amazing (laughs) at. Second, maybe something to work on. Third, another thing I'm great at. And then fourth, fifth, sixth, all compliments. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The most gorgeous person I've ever set eyes on. Thank you. I know. (laughs) I'm very well aware. And on that note. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Join us again next time for more of our bullshit.